0: they were bougie because they could tell who was calling and, uh, and they knew whether or not they wanted to pick up the phone. In fact, even when my wife and I first dated, I would go over to my in-law's house and their, their cable company would broadcast on the TV who was calling when it would come through. And so the phone would be ringing and just, they you wouldn't even have to stop watching TV. You could just glance up at the corner of the TV. I don't want to answer that phone call and, they, and let it go. Of course, now today we've got our phones and our devices and our watches and that tells us who's coming and calling and you can just do this on your watch and it silences the call. Sometimes you'd pick up the phone and go, oh man, yeah, how's it going? Yeah, everything's good here, right? There were those calls that you didn't necessarily want to answer. Well, there's a call that we're going to talk about this morning that I hope everybody in the room has answered or if you haven't, that you will today. We're talking about the call of Jesus, Jesus calling, Jesus is calling. There's a book by the title Jesus Calling that has sold over 45 million units. Units, I put it that way because it's sold both devotional books and kids books and storybooks and journals and seasonal versions and so forth and so on. And the author of that book is one Sarah Young. Well, in her introduction to this book, she wrote this, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Unfortunately, Ms. Young confused her thoughts and reflections recorded in her journal for the calling of Jesus. When considered from the pages of Scripture, Jesus' calling isn't about something more than or outside of the Bible. The call of Jesus, in fact, is an invitation to a life of discipleship, a life of devotion, a life that will never be the same again. In this morning's passage from John chapter 1, which is where we're going to be, we're going to find Jesus calling his first few disciples into the beginning of their relationship with him during his earthly ministry. And through this passage, we're going to be able to reflect on the call that we've received. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the the call that you've received into discipleship, into following him, a call marked by an enthusiasm for a future with him that changes everything about how we live our present lives. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We've been in this chapter for the last few weeks, handful of weeks here, and we pick up in verse 35. And beginning in verse 35 down through verse 39, it says this The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, "'Come, and you will see.' So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour." So the action opens up with the the phrase, the next day. Now there's time markers in John chapter one. I don't know if we've picked up on those yet, but they're going to be significant, especially for next week when we get to John chapter two. But for now, it's important to note. okay, so the next day, what are we talking about? Well, this goes back to the opening of the action here with that delegation that was sent to John the Baptist to find out who he was and why he was baptizing. That was day one. Okay, now the next day, we're, we're down the road here. We've already seen one where he saw Jesus coming to him the next day. That was last week again. So that was day two. Now we're on day three from that point in time. So John sees Jesus again, and John's there with his two disciples. Note that John had his own disciples, John was a rabbi in his own sense he had gathered a following, people that were listening to John and hearing from John's teaching and wanting to be like John the Baptist. And John was with two of his disciples at this point and he sees Jesus coming and he points him out again to these two and says, behold the Lamb of God. Now it doesn't say in the text who takes away the sins of the world who, like it did last time. But nonetheless, John is calling his disciples to look and see and acknowledge Jesus. Do you remember the word that describes John six times in the opening of, of the, the Gospel of John here, John the Baptist, six times it describes him this way? Witness. That he had come to bear witness, to testify not about himself, but about somebody else, and that somebody else was Jesus. And so John's with two of his disciples, and what John's, I think, trying to communicate to, to his disciples here, is that his role in their lives was drawing to an end that his purpose was coming to its fulfillment, that that really what they needed to do was leave him and go follow the one that was better than him. And so he says to them again, hey, y'all, listen up. Behold the Lamb of God. He's right there. Well, this time they hear him and they go, it says, and they followed Jesus. These two disciples leave their rabbi for Jesus, not in an act of disobedience, but actually in the ultimate act of obedience. In in leaving John to go follow Jesus, they were really applying the message of their teacher in the the, the greatest way they possibly could. We're going to see later from John the Baptist as we hear from him yet again in chapter 3 where he's going to give that, that great statement, he must increase and I must decrease. John came to fade into the black as Jesus stepped into the spotlight. And that's what he was trying to communicate to these disciples. So he encourages them, urges them, go to follow Jesus. And that's what they do. Now, sidebar real quick. Matthew, okay? Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we read of a different encounter between Jesus and these disciples. Because we're going to find out that one of these disciples was Andrew, the brother of Peter. The other disciple most likely was John. John the Apostle. John never mentions himself in the gospel, and this other disciple who was with Andrew is never named in our text. So it's likely that this was John. Also, the detail that John knows about this interaction, it would make sense if this was John the Apostle. But one of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now in Matthew chapter 4, we've got a scene taking place that you're familiar with, I'm sure, where Andrew and Peter are with their dad, and they're in a fishing boat, and they're mending their nets. And here comes Jesus, and Jesus calls out to them. And what does he say to them? He says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, right? Have you? And then what do they do? They, They immediately leave their nets, leave their dad, and they're gone. They're with Jesus, have you ever thought about how weird that is? Have you ever thought, like, what in the world? Like, that's a weird thing. We hear fishers of men through the lens of 2,000 years of church history. And we're like, well, of course, yeah, they're fishers of men. That's what we're called to be. We're all fishers of men. They didn't have that frame of reference. There was this random guy on the side of the road, looking at them in their boat with their dad all the the more. And they're fixing their fishing net because this is their livelihood. And this guy calls out to them and says, hey, you guys come follow me. Leave your dad. Leave the nets. Leave your living. Come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they just do it? What if, because we need to reconcile these two accounts, right? Because here we've got John the Baptist with Andrew saying, behold, the Lamb of God, and Andrew goes to follow. And then Matthew says, well, no, Andrew was with Peter in a boat when Jesus called him. What if this is what's going on? What if John 1 is the backstory to Matthew 4? What if John 1 is describing Andrew and Peter first beginning to get to know Jesus in more of an informal following? See, I think that's what's going on here. You'll note in our text, except for Philip in this passage, Jesus doesn't specifically call anyone here. Andrew and this other disciple go and attach themselves to Jesus. And then Andrew goes out and finds Peter. And then Philip will eventually go out and find Nathanael. So I think what's happening is this is the informal beginnings of the discipleship relationship of the disciples and Jesus, such that in Matthew four, when Jesus comes up to Andrew and Peter, they know who he is. This is the rabbi that they've been spending time with. This is the rabbi that they've been learning from, and now he's inviting them in Matthew 4 into a formal discipleship with him, which is why they're willing to say, hey, dad, we're gonna go and follow him. They leave their nets and they go to follow him. So John 1, Matthew 4, not competing with each other, but complimenting each other, giving us a fuller picture of what's going on in the gospel accounts. But Jesus, as they're following after him, turns and looks at them. And he asks a question. And the question he asks them is this what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What do you want? Now, John the apostle is a master at the the twofold meaning: Uh, the the original meaning or the the more surface meaning and the the deeper meaning. And that's what he's doing here. Because as he interacts with this group, as, as he interacts with these two, he asks them this question: what are you seeking? On the surface, he's asking them literally, hey you guys are following me? What what are you looking for? Does he know? Yes, he knows. But he's inviting them to let him know that they want to get to know him. They want to spend time with him. They want to learn from him. But this is also a question that John is asking us. What are you seeking? As you're thinking about Jesus, as you're here at church this morning, maybe you've been invited by a friend, maybe your parents have brought you, maybe You're here because you feel like this is the right thing to do and there's some moral obligation to be at church. What are you seeking from Jesus? It's the question John had for his disciples. It's the question that he has for you and me this morning as well. Well, they respond, we want to know where you're staying, Rabbi. In other words, we, we would like to come spend some time with you. We want to get to know you. And so they kind of invite themselves over, so to speak. Well, Jesus' response to them is this, come and you will see. Come and you will see. Again, the twofold meaning, the invitation to them and the invitation to us. It says then in the text, so they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. The 10th hour would have been about, uh, would have been about 4 p.m. So that it would have been towards the end of the, the Jewish day here. And so this is the, the end then of day three in our text. They come, they follow Jesus, Jesus says, come and see, and this marks the end of, of day three as these two disciples come in and attach themselves to getting to know Jesus. There was something about Jesus, though, that drew them, right? There was something that caused, that sparked this interest, and a lot of it had to do with John the Baptist, but I imagine there was some of it just about the, the commanding presence of, of Jesus as they were around him. And this interest and this enthusiasm is so often characteristic of other Christians as well as of believers as we first enter into a relationship with Christ. There's an interest, there's an enthusiasm about Jesus that draws us into that relationship. We want to know more. Who are you? And then once we find out who he is, it's, it's this excitement that bubbles over and this enthusiasm and it's, we become the cage stage Christian, right? We want to go out and convert the world and it's amazing and it's awesome and it's great, but the problem is that we have to be able to sustain that. These disciples would sustain it. If this is Andrew and John, one of them would give his life. Andrew would die for his faith. John would die in exile for his faith in Jesus. So they certainly sustained their interest in Jesus. But what about for you and me in the 21st century, sitting where we're sitting in America? Are we willing to sustain our enthusiasm, our interest for Jesus, such that it will not fade away. That's what I want us to consider in our first point this morning, and it's this. Sustain the enthusiasm of answering his call. Sustain the enthusiasm of answering his call. We can all think back, if you're saved, to the moment that you were saved, and the excitement, and the joy that you felt, and the the interest in Jesus, and you just wanted to take it all in. Give me the fire hydrant. I want to know more. How do we sustain that? read an article this week that talked about interest. Why are we interested in things? We're interested in some things, not interested in others. What, what decides that? This is not from a spiritual perspective, but here's from a biological perspective. It said, this interest is intertwined with concepts such as curiosity and enthusiasm, forming a triad of positive motivation fueled by an inbuilt desire for self-improvement. In other words, why are we interested in something? We're interested in something and excited about that thing because we look at it and say, this is good for me. This makes me happy. This does something that is beneficial for me. Certainly we can say that that would be true of our relationship with Christ, yes. That entering into that relationship with Christ is beneficial for us. It's good for us. But then what sustains that interest? I remember my first date with my wife. By the way, that is an actual photo of my first date with my wife. It's right here. I've got it. It's uh, dated 9-12-2003 was our first date. It's a long time ago. I had my puka shell necklace on. I had some diesel shoes on. My jeans were big and, and wide at the time. My wife was wearing some platform sandals. Yeah, our first date together. And I, I, I was certainly interested in her. And being classy, I took her to Chili's for our first date <laughs> and uh, let her order whatever she wanted. Wh- whatever, it, menu is yours, right? <laughs> and then afterwards, uh, being in Southern California, we got to enjoy the benefit of a free uh, ambiance date. So we went to Santa Monica and went to Third Street Pier on Santa Monica, in Santa Monica there. And I remember we went out to the end of the pier and we had a great conversation. And I mentioned marriage on the first date and she didn't run away, so that was good. Um, And it worked worked out for us. Some of you are wondering. I didn't propose to her on the first day. I just said, hey, look, I'm dating you to find out if you're the person that I should marry and vice versa. And if at any point either of us is out, we should just break this off, right? And she was in agreement with that. And we walked back to our car holding hands, and it was awesome. And I remember getting back to my dorm, and we went our separate ways. And I just remember thinking to myself, when can I go out with her again? I want to spend more time with her. And so it was like, I think five minutes later, I called her and was like, hey, can we go out again? Can we have a second date? And she said, yes. There's that country song, right? I thought I loved her then. It's true. But the love that I have for my wife today and the enthusiasm I have for her today versus what it was when I went out for that first date with her, it's not even comparable. I know her so much more. I love her so much more deeply, and that's because I've spent the last 17 years of our marriage pursuing her and sustaining that interest and enthusiasm for her. Y'all, that's what we need in our relationship with Jesus. See, too often we come to Jesus and we're excited at the outset about him. But that excitement wanes and it fades because the concepts of his grace and mercy that were once the best thing that we'd ever heard just become commonplace to us. And we're left to say, okay, how do I sustain this interest? Well, let's talk about that. How do we sustain this interest? I don't know if, if you're a YouTube guy. I'm a YouTube guy. And, and and so I there's this guy called the Underground History Follower or, or something like that. And, and I, I can just watch his channel for hours. I, I don't, but I, I could. He goes to the, the D-Day sites and things like that and walks through them, and, and he's a history buff, and so he's talking about them. And he's walking through these old World War II German bunkers and explaining everything in there. It just glues me. I'm, I'm interested in it, and so it sucks my attention. And some of you are out there like, last thing I would want to do. Last thing. But you are interested in something. There's something that you would binge, Social media, right? Maybe it's reels. You're interested in reels and you get stuck in doom scrolling, just nonstop, just flicking the thumb up, right? We are going to be known as the generations with the strongest thumbs ever, just because all of us just do this all the time. Or maybe it's, it's a book. It's an author that you have. It's a subject that you love to read about. You spend, what, what's the point in all this? You spend time investing in that. One of my interests is baseball. I love the Texas Rangers and they don't love me back which is true of every fan of the Texas Rangers, right? But I, I love them, and I'm interested in them. And so what does that mean? Well, it means I know about them. And, and unfortunately, I know far too much about who they are and their minor league system as well. And I subscribe to the Newberg Report if there's any other baseball nerds out there like me. And you, you get to know the minor league players and everything else. But if I told you, hey, I, I, I really like the Rangers... And you were like, oh, yeah, well, tell me about their, their team. And I started saying, well, they've got Pudge Rodriguez and Rafael Palmero and they've got Nolan Ryan. Some of you ladies are out there and be like, oh, cool, that's awesome. They played like decades ago, okay? If I didn't know any of the current players on the team, you'd look at me and be like, you're not a fan. You don't know anything about them. All I know is, is bits and pieces. You may have said you may used to have been a fan of that team. And it may be that you were at one time interested in them, but you can't tell me you're still interested in them because you don't know anything about them anymore. Because you're not investing the time. See, we spend time on that which we are interested in. And that needs to be true of our relationship with Christ, first and foremost, above anything else. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews wrote to the, the group that he was addressing. And he confronted them on a problem similar to this. He said this, he said, look, we we want to talk about more than we're able to talk about with you because Hebrews 5.12, by this time, though you ought to be teachers, you need someone to come back and teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. In in other words, your enthusiasm that you once had has waned and, and, and you're not growing in your relationship with Christ. You're not sustaining it. And then he goes on and he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, you know what, let us leave these elementary doctrines and press on to maturity as believers. We need to grow, and that requires this sustaining of the interest and enthusiasm for our relationship with Jesus. And so what does that look like? It looks like, and this is what I'm driving at, spending more time with him. Spending more time with him. Think about your week. I i am not a math guy. So I sat in my office and I was like, what is 10% of my week given to Jesus? And so I calculated how many hours there were in the week, and then I divided that by 10. And I was like, okay, so daily that would be 2.4. And I was like, okay, 2.4 times 10 is 20. Could have just started with 24 hours a day and been like, okay, 10% of my week is 2.4 hours a day. It's a good thing that you don't need me to be good at math. 2.4 hours a day is 10% of your week. So let me ask you that. Are you giving 10% of your week to Jesus? And and listen, let's be honest. Two and a half hours a day spent in your relationship with Christ is is a, a high bar for a lot of people. But when you think about how much time that you probably have, you probably do have two and a half hours to give to Jesus throughout the week. If you think about your commute, if you think about showering, you think about getting ready in the morning doing your hair brushing your teeth these are dead air times in our lives that you could take and redeem by listening to a podcast or listening to the audio bible or doing something like that and investing time in that relationship with christ i want you to ask this what if you only gave your wife two and a half hours a week what if you only gave your husband two and a half hours a week what if you only gave your employer two and a half hours a week what if you only gave your kids two and a half hours a week And so when we put it like that, all of a sudden, two and a half hours becomes a little bit more sustainable, two and a half hours a day, rather. And so what should we do if if this is the the, the problem that we're addressing is how much time we're spending with him? I want to suggest two things if I can. Number one, I, I think that all of us could start with a little bit of repentance. Maybe you've already asked the question and heard this answer this morning, but how are you? What's one of the main answers that we give besides good? Busy. Busy. Right? I'm busy. We used to tell our college students when I was a college pastor in California who would talk about being busy, okay, that's not going to go away. Like you don't stop being busy when you graduate college. It's just a different kind of busyness. All of us are going to be busy. You're going to be busy for the rest of your life. But if you're too busy to spend time with Christ, then you're too busy. And that's an area that we need to repent. Repent laziness that's some of it too we know we should we just don't we know we could set the alarm to get up 15 20 30 minutes earlier we just won't we know we could redeem our commute by listening to a sermon podcast or listening to the bible but it's just easier to listen to mindless sports talk radio I think the other area that we need to repent of probably is just sinfulness, because sometimes there's unconfessed sin in our life that keeps us back from pursuing Jesus the way I'm talking about pursuing Jesus. We feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel like we can't come before Him because there's some sin that we haven't dealt with and brought to the light and and confessed before Him. So repentance is step number one. Step number two is we need to plan to change. We need to plan to change. So here's what I'm gonna challenge you to do this week and, and even this afternoon is to sit down this afternoon at some point and pull out your calendar for this ne- next week. And you're gonna see on your calendar what your appointments look like for the next week. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your calendar and ask yourself, where are your appointments with Jesus this week? Where are they? And, and church, I'm gonna challenge you that they need to be there every single day. You need an with Jesus. And so put your, get your calendar out in front of you. Look at your white space. And if you go, oh, Pastor PJ, I've got no white space on my calendar. Get some white space on your calendar. Put some in there because your relationship with Christ is more important than your relationship with anything else. So let's plan for this. Let's put some appointments on our calendar with Christ. And then here's the other thing I'm going to challenge you to do. If you've got those appointments on your calendar, awesome, great job just like Paul with the Thessalonians, Excel still Mormon, I challenge you to add 10 more minutes to each of those appointments this week. Spend 10 more minutes with Christ with every one of those appointments this week. I promise you it's not time that you'll ever regret investing. You're not gonna get to heaven and stand before the Bema seat and be like, Jesus, I just wish I had spent less time with you. But I do fear we're gonna get to heaven and stand before the Bema seat and say, Jesus, I wish I had spent more time with you sustaining that enthusiasm, that interest. These two were interested in who Jesus was and their enthusiasm was only gonna build because they eventually found out who he was. In fact, pick back up in verse 40. It says, one of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. By the way, you'll notice these parenthetical statements. John does that throughout the gospel because he's writing to a broad audience And so he's writing to an audience that may not have understood what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And so he's explaining there for those that weren't from a Jewish background, didn't know that Christ meant Messiah, which was the expected Jewish one or Jewish savior. And so he said, we found the Messiah. He's saying, which means Christ. He's helping them understand this. Verse 42, so he brings Simon to Jesus, Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Again, another parenthetical statement. Well, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Okay, in that section here we cover, I've been talking about the days. Now we're covering days three and four here in the text. Days three and four. Even though it doesn't say the next day at the beginning of verse 40, it's implied by the note that it had been the 10th hour of the previous day. So when Andrew goes to find Peter, it was the next day, and then Jesus goes to find Philip the next day. And so we're progressing through uh, along the way here, but it's all connected in this chain of events, all the way dating back to when the, the people came to John the Baptist and said, "Who are you, and why are you baptizing?" So Jesus interacts with Andrew, Andrew goes and finds Peter, and he says this: "We have found the Messiah." which means the Christ. We read that, and it's kind of like, okay, great, awesome. Yeah, we're tracking. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Again, because we've got 2,000 years of church history on our side. Think about the excitement that Andrew has in this moment. This is when I wish there was like the audio Bible where we could get back there to listen to Andrew tell Peter we found the Messiah. Like enthusiasm boiling over into inexpressible joy at this point. From Malachi to John the Baptist, how long was that? How many years of silence? 400 years of silence from Malachi to John the Baptist with the nation of Israel waiting and watching and praying and pleading that God would intervene. Okay, let's go backwards from there. Isaiah, Isaiah 53, you've got the prophet who's writing about this suffering servant, this one who would bear the sins of many, right? This, this one who would make many righteous by his sacrifice. How many years between Isaiah and Jesus? Anybody know? 700 or thereabouts. Okay, let's go backwards still. Let's go back to David. You remember David in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You have here Nathan the prophet telling David, hey, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And in fact, you're going to have descendants, and there's going to be one that's going to sit on your throne, and his kingdom will never, ever, ever end. You know how long it was from David to Jesus? About a 1,000 years, give or take. Let's go back further. Genesis you've got Adam and Eve. They reach out, they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat and sin comes and God walks in the garden and says, where are you? We were hiding. Who told you you were naked? Well, Adam says, the woman did it and the woman says, the serpent did it and God begins to dole out consequences and one of them is worth our attention. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel because he looks to the serpent and he says this to Satan. He said, there will be a descendant of the woman. You satan will strike his heel but he will crush your head who's the descendant of the woman jesus the messiah how long from adam and eve to jesus four thousand years give or take so when andrew goes to his brother and says we found the messiah i want us to hear the charge in that statement That is huge, that's massive, that's monumental, that's 400 years, 700 years, a thousand years, 4,000 years of expectation, and longing, and excitement, and what if, and is this the one, and where is he, and where's he going to come from, and what's it going to be like? And then Jesus, it says, goes to Galilee. It says he decided to go to Galilee. We're going to read in John chapter 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. Again, there's there's a lot communicated just in that statement. Jesus decided to go. Why? Because he was walking into a divine appointment between him and Philip and then Nathaniel. And he calls Philip, and then Philip finds out this is the Messiah. So Philip, out of his joy, goes and finds Nathaniel and says to Nathaniel, We have found the Messiah, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. We found him. By the way, Philip, it gets better. You want to know why? Because he's got a name, Jesus of Nazareth. Now we're going to get into Nathaniel's response in the next point. But this is what I want us to focus on. The exceeding joy of this statement, we have found the Messiah. We read that through 21st century eyes and it doesn't move the needle for us. And it should. Because it's no less significant for us. Because you and I, our need for Jesus is just as great as Andrew and Peter's need for Jesus. Just as great as Philip and Nathaniel's need for Jesus. We needed him just as much. And if you're in Christ this morning, you can say with them, we have found the Messiah. Our second point this morning it has to do with what that does in our lives because it changes everything. And it gives us a new outlook, a new perspective, and it gives us a hope, a joy that should be abiding within us. Point number two this morning is this, hope in the future secured by his call. Hope in the future secured by his call. We've found the Messiah. They were excited about that, not just because they got to spend time with the Messiah, they're excited about that because what, of, what their expectations were that the Messiah was going to do. They're saying, the Messiah is here, and that means something good and great for us. Now, they didn't have the full picture. They would get it eventually. But you and I, on the backside of the cross, we know what kind of Messiah that he came to be, that he came to be the suffering servant before, the, the returning, conquering king that we read about in our scripture reading this morning. We know that he came to be the Messiah to save us from our sins, not to save us from a, a political opponent. We know all of those things. And so they were excited about finding the Messiah because of the future that they were hopeful for, that the Messiah was going to bring. You and I this morning, man, are we excited about finding Jesus because of the future that he secured for us? Because of the fact that he's died on the cross for our sins. I think about things that that secured a future in my life. I think about the time that I proposed to my wife. She said yes. That day was so exciting, but it was, yeah, about that day and that moment, and that was cool, but it was more about what was coming as a result of that, that we were going to be able to be married. Or when she told me that we were going to have our first child, like that day was exciting, but it was only exciting because I I, I looked forward to the day that I was going to be able to hold my son in my arms for the first time. Or the the day that I found out that I was going to get to come and plant this church, like, that day was exciting, but only because of the reality that we're now all enjoying right here, that we get to do this together. Or the day that Pastor Rod came in my office and said, hey, what do you think, what if I came with you on this church plant? And I thought he was joking at first, because I couldn't think of a, a scenario better than that, right? And that, yes, that day was great, but it's, it's because now I get to do ministry with a guy that's one of my greatest friends in life. See, we know this concept, that we experience something now that guarantees something later. And finding Jesus as the Messiah guarantees this future that we get to spend with him for all of eternity. And that's the greatest news. And that's the greatest thing that we could ever have happen to us in this life. I imagine winning the Super Bowl is exciting. I I don't know. I know that's shocking. I've never experienced it. But, I imagine it's exciting. Think about a guy like Tom Brady, right? I don't even remember how many he won, seven? That guy was otherworldly when he played. And you'd think, okay, if anybody riding high on life, it's going to be Tom Brady. Well, after his third Super Bowl, when he was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and this is what Tom Brady had to say. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? There's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? It's one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history who reached the pinnacle of his sport over and over and over and over and over again, saying, This is it. This is it. The interviewer right on the heels of this said, Well, what's the answer? And Brady said, I I wish I knew. I wish I knew. See, Brady was looking for his life to be fulfilled by winning the Super Bowl, and he did it once. And he was like, "Okay, well, I'm going to do it again." And he did it again, and he, I'm going to do it again. And he did it again. And then he went and did it again and again. And he went to Tampa Bay and did it in Tampa Bay. And then, and it, at the end of the day, I, I bet you, if you ask Tom, does he still feel this way? I, my my guess is he's going to say yes. Christians coming to Jesus will never leave you saying, "This is it." You always give you that hope in what's, what's to come, no matter what's going on right now. I, I'm one of the worst case scenario type people. So I've got, I need some backfill for the foundation at my house because we lived in the, the, the hottest place on the planet earth this summer. And so the ground decided it didn't like my house anymore. So it's just like trying to get away from my house. So I need to go and in, in, in backfill on that. And if you guys are experts in that, I'm humble enough to ask for your help in that. But I'm the guy that's the worst case scenario. So in the meantime, I'm thinking to myself, great, my house is just splitting down the middle of, it's just going to fall. Like the walls are just going to go like this one day. I'm going to walk out and it's going to fall over because I haven't backfilled the side of my house. Or my, (laughs) our our bathroom sinks backed up a couple weeks ago and I went out and I got Drano. Um, But I I, I was by, I bought the Drano and I was coming home and, and I was like, well, I hope this works. But in my mind, I'm playing out the worst case scenario. I'm like, this is probably, you know what? It's probably not this. It's probably, there's a massive drain problem in my yard that's gonna be like $30,000 to dig up my yard and fix the pipes because something happened in the pipes and that's why my bathroom sink is backing up. It was hair, Drano got it out. But that's who I am. I, I, my mind goes to worst case scenario. Why? Because I wanna be ready for it. I don't want the worst case scenario to catch me off guard. Here's the good news, y'all. When we come to Christ, there is no more worst case scenarios because the end of every scenario is eternity with Jesus. The end of every scenario is eternity with Christ. And so it allows us to hope. It allows us to sustain that hope. It gives us the seat, so to speak, on on God's plane to take a God's eye view over our context and surroundings. Have you ever noticed how different the the world looks when you're 30,000 feet up in the air? Man, when, when we come to Christ and he saves us, we, all of a sudden when we read the scriptures and we understand that God is sovereign over all this, it gives us this God's eye view of what's going on here and allows us to hope through the difficulty, through the pain, through the sorrow. And so if you lose your job and you don't know how to make ends meet, but you found the Messiah, you have a hope because you now have access to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help you in time of need. If you hear the word cancer from your doctor, but you found the messiah, you can now confidently claim that God will even use this disease for your good in making you more like Jesus. If you're battling depression or anxiety, but you found the Messiah, you have an invitation from the Father to bring your hurts your fears, your cares, and your anxieties to prayer, in prayer rather, to him. And the promise that he says he will give you a peace that surpasses understanding that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I know last week I asked you to write Servant of Christ on some index cards and tape them up around your house. Some of you did. I got pictures of it and it was awesome. It was encouraging. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to to tape up more index cards around your house. But I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to take this thing this week, okay? And here's what I want you to do. And I think this is going to help us as we think about this hope in the future and sustaining this hope in the future. I I want you to take that. And and most of them now have a reminders app built into it. In fact, on Apple, that's what it's called because Apple is not the most creative in naming their things. They've got an app called Notes where you take notes. And they've got an app called Reminders where you set reminders but I want you to do this. Set a repeating reminder to go off every day this week, at least once, that says read, and here's what I want you to read. This can be one of your appointments with Jesus, so this is doubling up. I'm, I'm, you're welcome, okay? You're welcome. This can be one of your appointments from, with Jesus from point number one, but I want you to do this. I want you to remind yourself to read Revelation 21, 1 through 7 every day this week. Revelation 21, 1 through 7, set the reminder to go off or whatever you use to remind yourself to do something. If that's your daily planner, write it in your daily planner. Whatever that is, read Revelation 21, 1 through 7 every day this week and allow that to sustain the hope of what it means that you've found the Messiah. Because what he talks about there, this future where there's no more sickness, pain, disease, anything else, this future where God's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes, this future where God is going to dwell with you, that future is yours because you found the Messiah. And because of his death on the cross, he's given you access to that future. And so hope in the future is secured by his call. The joy, again, I, I wish we could have been there to see Andrew go to find Peter and to see Philip go to find Nathaniel. By the way, Nathaniel, you may be wondering, who's Nathaniel? Because if you've read the Synoptic Gospels, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice Nathaniel's not listed there. So, Maybe you're going, is this a 13th disciple? Well, no, it's not. Um, If you go to those lists, the the one that you'll find there is the, the name Bartholomew. Bartholomew. And Bartholomew in those lists is often listed in proximity right next to Philip. Philip and Bartholomew. And so it's likely that Bartholomew was another name for Nathaniel. In fact, Bar means son of, right? So son of Ptolemaeus or Ptolemaeo. So it's likely Bartholomew was another name for Nathaniel here. So when you read Bartholomew in the New Testament, in the, the three other Gospels, that's, I think, who Nathanael is here. Philip goes to find Nathaniel. Now, let's talk about Nathanael. Nathaniel, Jesus says to, to, to Philip, This is who I am. Come and follow me. Philip gets excited, goes to find Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, This can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This interesting opening. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What? Nazareth? When I was growing up out here, the biggest rivalry in the state was the rivalry between UT and who? A&M. It's now turned into UT and OU. But the the true, the OG rivalry was UT and A&M. And UT is going back to the SEC, and I'm excited. I'm hopeful that rivalry will kick back up again. But here's the thing: you are either a Longhorn or an Aggie, and there was no there was no mingling of those. In fact, people who got married an, an Aggie to a Longhorn, they hung things in their home that said "A house divided." Like they, people just needed to know this is not natural. This is not supposed to work this way. They were opponents of one another. They didn't like each other. And imagine if a, a graduate of A&M had run for office and you had a UT grad that agreed with everything politically about that person, they're still not voting for them because they graduated from A&M. The rivalry ran that deep, right? That's probably what's going on between Cana, which is Nathaniel's hometown, and Nazareth, which is where Jesus was from. Nazareth was a small town. It was a, a, a blip on the map. Cana was a region there in Galilee as well. But, but there's this disdain in what Philip has to say here. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's a town called Dorchester, Texas. I didn't even know it existed. It's like 25, 30 miles away from here. Dorchester, Texas. It's a booming metropolis. Ready for this? Its population currently, 69 people. 69 people in Dorchester, Texas. That's kind of the the idea here. How could anything good come out of Dorchester? How could anything good come out of Nazareth? What's Philip's response? I love the simplicity of it. It's the title of this whole series of the study of the gospel of John, and it's this, come and see. And again, John here, he's saying, yeah, this is what Philip's saying to, to Nathaniel, but this is also what Philip and John and Jesus and God tonight, or this morning is saying to you and to me, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Well, Nathanael agrees, and he's walking up, and there's this statement that Jesus makes. He says, behold, an Israelite. This was a common way for one Jew to refer to another Jew at the time. Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit or guile. In other words, this man is true. He appraises things as they are. He's not gonna sugarcoat anything. Nathanael says to him, how do you know me? Jesus said, well, before Philip called you, I saw you sitting under that fig tree. That's enough for Nathanael. Rabbi, you are the son of God and the king of Israel. Son of God. That, that was a title that was messianic in its, its weight, in its implications. Second Samuel seven fourteen in that Davidic covenant I mentioned earlier, there was a line there that said, I will be to him, this coming one, a father, and he shall be to me a son. So there was this a concept that the, the Messiah would be the son of God. Psalm 2, I read it earlier this morning during our scripture reading time. Today I have installed my son, my king on Zion. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. So there was an understanding that the Messiah would be the son of God. So Nathaniel is, is confessing that Jesus is the Messiah here. And then he calls him the king of Israel, another messianic title here. And Jesus says, you're impressed because I just said I saw you sitting under the fig tree? Oh man, buckle up. You're going to see way bigger things than this. In fact, Nathaniel, you're going to see the heavens opened up and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of God. This is a reference, an allusion back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 28. Not 22, 28. Genesis 28, Abram, or Jacob rather, I'll get things right eventually. If you just give me some time, I'll get there. (laughs) Jacob has a dream and sees a ladder descend from heaven and these angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder this this the, the breach between heaven and earth being being closed that, that there was a link now between heaven and earth jesus is here saying that now he's the one that's the better fulfillment of that he's the one that is going to bridge the gap between heaven and earth in a way that's never been experienced before you're going to see greater things than these y'all answering the call to follow jesus changes our lives forever We become witnesses to greater things than these. We get to to see him doing things that we never imagined possible for him to do. Our third and final point this morning is this. Think different because of his call. Think different, not because of some tech company. But think different because of his call as Jesus was telling the disciples, cause now he changes to, it's, it's the, the Texas standard version, right? The TSV, y'all are gonna see greater things in these. He's telling them all that they're gonna witness these things, not just Nathaniel at this point. Y'all are gonna see greater things in these. Well, what are they gonna see? Well, let's talk about some of those things for a minute. They're gonna see him turn water to wine in the very next chapter. Spoiler alert, that's coming next week. He's also going to heal a nobleman's son that's going to be pretty impressive when we see him do that. Greater things than these. He's also going to heal a lame man. That's going to be pretty impressive also. This man that was, has been lame for almost 40 years, and Jesus is going to heal him. He's also going to feed 5,000 men, not to mention the, the, the women and children that were probably present as well. Twelve to 15,000 potentially people that he feeds from a, a few loaves and fish. That's impressive. That's greater things than these. He's also going to walk on water. That's pretty Amazing. If you're like me growing up, you tried to run as far out on the pool as you could get and you thought you were going 10, 15 feet, you were going 10 or 15 inches and sinking, right? Jesus walks on water. That's pretty impressive. How about this? He heals a man born blind. John, these are, this is all just in John that we're gonna see these things, these greater things than these. He's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. Okay. Those are pretty impressive, but let's not stop there. Let's keep going. Jesus himself is gonna resurrect Not a resuscitation, resurrect. He's never going back to the grave. That's things greater than these. Jesus is going to resurrect you someday. That's something that's greater than him telling Nathaniel, I saw you relaxing under the fig tree. How about this? Jesus is going to vanquish sin and death forever, Revelation 19 and 20. That's something greater. Jesus is going to create the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. That's something greater. Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's something greater that we are going to be able to see and behold. Jesus is going to dwell with us as our God. Certainly something greater. But not to sound like a cheesy game show host, but that's not all, right? All this stuff is future. But guess what, y'all? He's doing greater things right now that because you're in Christ, you have eyes to see when the world is totally oblivious to what's going on. Think about a few of these things. How about the birth of your firstborn child or the birth of any of your children? The significance that you feel knowing that this child was knit together by your heavenly father in the womb. That's something greater that the world doesn't get privy to that you get privy to because you've answered his call. How about the sunrise? Did you guys see it this morning? Pulling out of my neighborhood, I saw it just blasting out there. We saw it again last night. The sun set at my son's soccer game, just between the clouds. The skies are amazing, and it's God saying, hey, I'm here. And we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, because we've answered the call, look at that and see that and worship God, we get to witness something greater than the atheist who looks at that and says, oh, look at that. That's amazing that all of the molecules just happened to create all that beauty out there. It almost looks like it was designed or intentional. Or think about what we're doing right now, that you get to experience the comfort and love and community of a body of believers in Jesus Christ right now, when the world is dying for that. They want what this is and they can't find it in Kiwanis, whatever that club is that people join, or the Masons or any, that's just why they gravitate towards things like that. Pickleballs, the new version, people are looking for this in pickleball, it's not there. I've played it, not well. You guys get this, this weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice community that's ours because we've answered the call. These are greater things that we're enjoying here and now. Yes, the greatest is to come, but church, don't miss what he's doing right now as well. My final challenge for you this morning is this. I want you to to try journaling this week. And before you write me off and you're like, ah, that's too touchy-feely for me, you don't have to, to start with Dear Diary, okay? So there you go, men. And it doesn't have to be 15 pages or even 15 lines. It can be 15 words. But look for something this week, every single day, that you see that's something greater that God has done that you realize because of your relationship with Jesus that otherwise maybe you wouldn't have seen. And just do that once a day. The practice of journaling can be so helpful for us because it causes us to slow down in the midst of a busy and chaotic life and to stop and reflect and to think And to say, okay, God, where have I seen you at work today? Because I don't want to miss an opportunity to worship you. Think different because of his call. For many of you in the room, Jesus has called, and you've answered. And now you're working to sustain that enthusiasm, hoping in that future that he's secured for you. And yes, you're looking for that perspective shift of how you're seeing him do greater things even here and now. But for others of you in this room, Jesus has been calling. And some of you, he's been calling for years, maybe even decades. And you've heard the phone ringing. And for whatever reason, you haven't wanted to pick up. And, And let me just let you know that this morning it's time to pick up. It's time to answer the call of Christ in your life this morning. He continues to put you in the way of the gospel for a reason. And don't take that lightly. Because there may come a day where he pulls you out of that. And you don't ever hear it again. The Father loves you to the point that he sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for your sins. And rise from the dead so that you can live with him forever. And if this morning you will repent from your sins and trust that Jesus has done that for you, that's what it looks like to answer the call. Pick up. Pick up. We don't have to look outside the Bible for Jesus' calling. We've got everything we need here. And when we're saying, man, I just want to know what he's saying personally to us. He's saying it here. And so I hope and I pray that this week we'll give ourselves over to this book a little bit more maybe than we did last week. And then I pray that that'll be true next week as well until he comes back and calls us home to be with him. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for that call. Undeserved though it was, and it it was, we readily and freely admit that, that this is not something that we merited, something that we earned, something that was ours because of some inherent worth. But God, it's ours because of your grace, unmerited favor, your kindness, your mercy, that you don't give us what we deserve, but instead you issue a call to call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. What an amazing reality that is. It changes everything, Lord. It changes everything about our perspective. It doesn't mean that we don't hurt now, we do hurt now. We do weep now. We do feel pain and sorrow and sting now. But, Lord, we don't despair because we know that one day, because of this call, there's a future secured for us where we will be with you forever and ever without end. And in that place, there will be no hurt. There will be no sorrow. There will be no sting. There will be no sin. And we will, as we're about to sing as we conclude here, spend eternity beholding our God. God, I pray that this week you would just give us a little bit more of a glimpse of who you are through your word, that we'd be able to behold you a little bit more clearly even this week as we go throughout our lives, as we go to our work, as we stay at home, as we spend time with family. Help us know you more as we lean further into our call, into our relationship with Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.